Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Good morning. Uh, We're going to start out today how we normally start out. We're just going to kind of address the fact that we live in a culture that is really quick to critique. So something we love to say here at Crossroads is that the conviction of the Spirit, or the leading of the Spirit, is to inward conviction, not outward critique. So we're just going to take a moment to pray that the Holy Spirit would clear our minds of those sorts of critiques and that we would be participants here this morning. As I'm teaching, as y'all are listening, we would all learn about what God wants to teach us today. So if you will bow your heads with me, we can pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you come from Jesus to bring us the truth. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us, that you would guide us towards inward conviction, not outward critique, that you would, in our hearts, do a work this morning, that you would reveal to us what you want to teach. If you want to just take a moment to pray silently to the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we also pray that you would use my words to guide us this morning. Uh, Your word is truth, and I ask that I would be able to accurately teach from it this morning, and that hearts would be taught. If you would pray silently with me for a moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine Tom Cruise, the actor. He's standing in a suit next to a podium, and he's standing opposite Jack Nicholson, who is seated at a witness stand. Tom Cruise is wearing a suit. He's a lawyer. He's playing Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, and Jack Nicholson is playing a Marine Corps officer, Colonel Nathan Jessup. The two have had a really heated exchange. Caffey has actually caught Colonel Jessup in a lie in the way that he's been testifying on the stand. And so as things get to kind of a fever pitch, Caffey says, I want the truth. And Colonel Jessup snaps back the familiar line, you can't handle the truth. I've really enjoyed this movie. This is from a movie called A Few Good Men, released in 1992. And I'm going to have a little bit of spoilers in it. Kind of my personal policy is if it came out before the year I was born, I can spoil it. (laughs) Uh, And in this movie... um, Colonel Jessup is lying about some orders that he gave to subordinate officers. And he's been caught in this lie, and he's questioning whether or not the truth about that lie is something that people can handle. He says, you can't handle the truth. I've always really wondered about that line. He he genuinely believes that he's doing the right thing by lying. He's protecting the Marine Corps. He's protecting his base and his mission and his fellow soldiers. Sorry, fellow Marines. Uh, He is very like convinced he's doing the right thing. And although the language of the movie seems to be implying he's in the wrong, I sometimes wonder if there is situations in which telling the truth, you know, is something that other people can't handle. And I'm not the only person who wonders about this. I looked at a study that was done uh, last year, actually, by the University of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. They thought to, to look at how often people lied and the stated reasons for lying. 
And some interesting numbers came out of that. 75% of survey respondents said that they told two uh, to zero, zero to two lies per day. That the top 1% of respondents said that they averaged about 17 lies per day. But the most interesting thing that the uh, study found was that people actually varied really, really widely what, uh, like the number of lies. So someone who never lies ever might have a day on which they tell 20 and vice versa. People who lie all the time might have a particularly honest day. They said that about 7% of total communication is lying and that almost 90% of lies would be considered white lies. So they took a list of about 116,000 of these lies and they broke them down by the stated reasons. Some of these I think are pretty interesting. The biggest reason at 21% was lying to avoid somebody. Lying to avoid spending time with someone you don't want to see or avoid talking to someone you don't want to talk to. I can really relate to this one. You know, I just imagine the times when someone calls maybe a relative of mine, uh, like, my like, like my parents or something. <laughs> and you don't really want to talk to them at the moment, so you just kind of, you know, act like, oh, I'm busy or whatever. There might be like a neighbor or a coworker you don't want to interact with, and so sometimes a lie just feels like the convenient thing to do. Another of these uh, results I thought was really interesting was 20% of the lies were for humor, for, for like a joke, uh, for a prank. And this made me think of a friend I had in college who would do this all the time. Um, basically, we would make plans to go study at the library or go to dinner or something, and he'd tell me that's what we were doing, but I'd get in his car, and then he'd already bought movie tickets to a showing, and we headed to the movie theater instead. And he surprised me, but he did lie to get me there. It was nice, it was fun, but also it kind of eroded my trust in him after a while. <laughs> Another thing that he did that was really annoying was that he would sometimes moonlight as an Uber driver, and so sometimes I'd get in the car to go with him to the library, and we'd head to a bar to pick up people instead. Another interesting reason people lied in the study was uh, to benefit someone or to protect their reputation. That was about 16% of lies. These seem a lot more justifiable, you know? If, if somebody's saying something bad about someone, even if it's true, you want to protect their reputation. 13% of the lies were told to impress somebody else. That's kind of a more selfish motive, but you know, you kind of inflate your resume a little bit. You kind of inflate what you do. You describe what you do maybe in a little bit more lofty terms. I'm not going to list all of them, but the last one I thought was really interesting. 5% of lies were told, quote, for no reason at all. People just, just felt like lying in the moment. <laughs> and they reported that on a survey. I wonder how often that happens when it's not just self-reported. So looking at these different reasons for lying, some of them are selfish, some of them are not, but it makes me wonder about this question of lying. I always kind of grew up with the adage of, you know, you, sh you should tell the truth, you shouldn't lie. And it's kind of treated as almost if it's like a black and white issue. But I feel like it's really more of a gray issue. I feel like there are times when Colonel Jessup is actually right. There are truths that people can't handle, and our strategies for dealing with that might uh, be in this gray between telling the total truth and telling a lie. So let's see what God's word says about it. We're in this series on the Ten Commandments, and I'm looking at the Ninth Command. You can find that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, or Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. They're actually written exactly the same, kind of. 
Uh, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A lot of people remember this command as do not lie, but that's actually not what it says. It says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That's kind of old-timey way of saying, don't commit perjury. Don't do what Colonel Jessup was doing. Don't get on the stand and swear that you're going to tell the truth and then lie. God has kind of narrowed it, at least in this command, in these top ten commands, we have some really important things. And why number nine made the list, why perjury made the list, is because you have to have a solid basis for your society. If you remember, the law of Moses is meant to be kind of like a constitution for the new Jewish people. They're coming out of Egypt, they're coming out of slavery. He's making a new country. And their constitution has to have a law against perjury. Otherwise, you can't trust the court system. You can't have a functioning society. You can't trust that anything... Uh, a value is being said because there's no standard that you can go to judges or priests to come before and say, this is where the truth is. There's actually more laws about it. If you look at Deuteronomy 19, it says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. It was understood as they were in God's presence, but particularly they're appearing before priests and judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you should do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. In the law of Moses, false witnesses get the punishment that would have gone to the person that they were lying about. If we go back to that movie, A Few Good Men, again, spoiler to the plot, uh, once it's discovered that Colonel Jessup is lying, he gets arrested. and He actually kind of starts trying to fight against the bailiffs and everything because he just cannot believe he's done anything wrong. But he has. He has lied in a court of law that is illegal. And so he's being taken away. Just the same, the law of Moses would punish anybody who would try to lie. And this is actually a thing that you do find in other law codes of the Old Testament, not the Old Testament, of the ancient Near East. Code of Hammurabi is a really good example. That one says that if you accuse somebody of something, you would also get the punishment. If you accuse somebody of murder, it actually is the first uh, law in the Code of Hammurabi. If you accuse somebody of murder and you're lying, you die. So God is very clearly concerned with this perjury, but it makes me wonder about like lying in general. Why didn't God make lying in general illegal? And it takes me back to this line of you can't handle the truth. Uh, because there's times, there's situations in the Old Testament where somebody couldn't, where it would have been actually unloving, it would have been almost evil to tell the truth in that moment. So let's look at some examples of those. Um, the Hebrew midwives, earlier in the book of Exodus. A lot of y'all might know the story where the Jewish people have moved into the land of uh, Egypt. Uh, they were brought in under Joseph, but then a different pharaoh comes to power and he enslaves them. They start growing so numerous that the next pharaoh is actually scared about their numbers, and so he orders that all of the Hebrew bo boys be killed. He's basically ordering a genocide. And so these Hebrew midwives, who are probably sort of the head of an organization of midwives, there's probably sort of like a guild going on, like training. But these two kind of represent the whole and they're ordered by the king to kill these boys, and they don't. The numbers keep growing. Pharaoh calls them in and be like, what's going on? And they lie. They say, oh, they're just, they're, they give birth before we're able to get there. So 
In so doing, they're protecting the lives of these baby Hebrew boys, but they aren't telling the truth. And you'd think if lying is always wrong in every circumstance all the time, God would be like, hmm, that's not good, you know, and maybe they even be punished. But instead, God blesses them. God gives them huge families, which in the Old Testament, for any man or woman, that's all you really wanted, was a family that was around you, that could support you, particularly support you into your old age. Same thing actually happens with Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute who lives in the city of Jericho, you know, marching around the walls of Jericho. Before that city got destroyed, Rahab was there, and Rahab uh, was a prostitute visited by two of the spies that the Jews had sent in. She hides them. The king's men come and ask, where are they? They want to come kill them. And she basically, almost like a cartoon, says, they went that way. And uh, instead, she has them hit them up on the roof, and then she's able to guide them out of the city. Then when the city of Jericho is destroyed, the whole wall falls down except the one spot where her house is. And her and her whole family get saved because she lied to protect the Jewish, uh, the Jewish spies. I would make the argument that the condition on when you can lie is when it's going to save lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a minister during the time of the, um, the Holocaust, World War II, and he basically made the argument that truth is for those who deserve it. So if two German officers come to your door and you have Jews hiding in a cupboard and they ask you, do you have any Jews hiding in your cupboards? You lie to them. You say, no, I don't. Um, not everybody actually agrees with that, though. I read a lot of theologians this week. They kind of go back and forth on, really, is, is truth really worth it, or is it okay to lie in these circumstances? And I'm not going to give like a definitive thing. Thankfully, none of us are probably going to be in a situation like that. <laughs> but we are in situations all the time where something less uh, serious, but just as um, uncomfortable might happen, where someone comes to the door and wants to talk to you about um, the Book of Mormon or something. Uh, there's, there's situations where we want to avoid people, and so we might lie to kind of get people out of our way. And I kind of wonder if that is in the heart of Jesus. So going back to our command, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's recorded in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, but, and it's translated the same way, but the words are actually a little bit different when you look at the Hebrew. So I'm going to pull up the Hebrew. <laughs> Lo ta'ana berika aid shaker versus lo ta'ana berika aid shall. That word shaker comes from the basic word in the Hebrew Bible that means to lie. Like if I'm going to betray somebody, if I'm going to be duplicitous, am I going to say something that's false? It's normal to say this word. But if I want to emphasize the worthlessness of a lie, that when somebody says something that's false, there's no substance to it. It's, it's, it's a worthless thing. You use this word shall. This word is actually the same word that happens in the third command about not taking God's name in vain, not treating God's name as if it is shall, as if it is this worthless, empty thing. What I think is really interesting about these two commands is that they kind of encapsulate something that Jesus said a lot, that the law encapsulated one thing is love God and love others. Well, with the third command, it's love God with your words, and the ninth command is love God, love others with your words. Don't speak of other people as if they are nothing. Don't speak of God as if he is nothing. And I feel like this kind of gets to the heart of Jesus' view of truth. We're supposed to love people with our words. We're supposed to love people with truth. And so whether or not we lie is not the biggest question. 
The biggest question is, are our words loving to others? But truth is a big deal to Jesus. When he was praying for his followers at the Last Supper, he said, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. He was speaking to God and he was saying that we are to be full of truth because God's word is truth. God's word is supposed to shape us, it's supposed to sanctify us or make us holier. It's supposed to shape the way that we live and that we speak about God and others. And so, it would come back to this question of whether or not telling the truth and lying is a black and white thing or a gray thing. On the whole, I don't think that we should lie. I personally believe that when we lie in life-threatening situations like Shipra and Pua and Rahab, the Hebrew midwives, uh, and the Jericho prostitute, um, I think that it is okay, but other people can disagree with me about this. I think that it is okay to disagree with, as Christians about some of these things. But on the whole, I think we're supposed to tell the truth. I think that Jesus' commands to love others and love God means that we should speak the truth. One area where this is really gray would be how we talk to children. When you talk to a child, say you're going to say, you know, you can do anything. That's not literally true. Uh, or if you say something like, you can be anything. You could grow up to be anything. That's still not literally true. I could have in no life played for the NFL. There are lots of kids who, are, who want to be astronauts that are not going to be. It's a very, very small percentage, and even a smaller percentage of people who want to grow up to be president. But there's truth in that statement, in that we want, you know, people to, we want kids to believe in their passions and pursue them and work hard for things and pursue goals, even if that statement isn't literally true. We speak differently to adults, but there's another group of people that I kind of wonder about whether I should speak the whole truth to, whether or not it's okay for some of these gray areas. And that would be when I personally am speaking to non-Christians or new Christians, when they start asking like really serious stuff. So like when I'm talking to a Muslim, I really don't want to get into the Trinity. I want to do whatever I can to kind of stay away from the Trinity conversation until they're on board with Jesus. Because if they don't believe in Jesus, if they don't believe that his words are true, the Trinity is not going to make any sense. If I'm talking to a new Christian and they want to get into the whole argument about Calvinism versus Arminianism, uh, I want to just avoid that conversation altogether. And they might ask about, like, hey, is God good? Does God control everything? Does he predestine everything? And, you know, in that conversation, my words may not be totally precise. Uh, they may not totally even be technically true. But it's because I'm trying to avoid that conversation to get them to the basics about reading the word, about the goodness of God, the fact that he can be trusted. So if I get into things about how he is, you know, sovereign and predestines things, that can get really confusing for people. That can be really harmful for people. That can be truths and ideas that I think some young Christians can't really handle. So I have to be careful how I handle the truth. One strategy in the Bible for getting people truth that it's hard for them to handle is to tell it in the form of a story. There's parables, uh, there's these sort of fictions that prophets or Jesus will bring up to kind of uh, get the truth in through the back door. Makes me think of Nathan. So Nathan is a prophet at the time of King David. He's a famous king of Israel who had uh, stolen the wife of one of his friends and then gotten his friend killed to cover it up. This is very serious. But he was living with this wife. He was kind of acting in denial. And so the prophet Nathan knew that the wise thing to do 
was to tell him a story first. He told him a story about a man who had many, many sheep and then stole the little lamb of this one poor guy. And David immediately was like, no, that's so wrong. That person should be punished. If you already have tons of sheep, you shouldn't steal the young man. And then, and then get the guy killed so that you can take his sheep. And then Nathan's like, you're the man. The sheep are the wives. You already have tons of wives. You're this wealthy king, and you killed your friend to steal his. The story disarms David, whereas if he had just come out right with an accusation, you shouldn't have married Bathsheba, then he may not have been receptive to it. But the story kind of got it in the back door, kind of got David to see it from a new perspective, and then he was willing to confess. But the story wasn't literally true. This is where we get into the realm of, of fiction. I also go back to kind of the humor or the, the, the lies that my friend would tell me when he would surprise me with something nice, like going to a movie. Is it okay to tell these sort of half-truths when it's for the good of another person? And I would say that there is, again, a gray area around this. When we have our white lies, we could tell them for convenience purposes, we could tell them to seek the good of another. And I think our motive is really part of what matters here. Am I just trying to avoid inconvenience? Am I trying to avoid a conflict? Or maybe, am I preparing a surprise birthday party for my friend? And I need to lie to get them there so that I can preserve the surprise. Lying, I really feel like, is based on the context, the motive, and whether or not your words are actually blessing the person. Because if they're gonna be blessed by it in the end, if they feel loved by it in the end, I wonder if we would even, even should call it a lie. To me, the, the truth is an ideal that we should pursue. We should be people who are constantly speaking the truth, that we want to cater to like the, the, the needs of the person. Uh, I think we need to base it off of their maturity. We need to base it off of our relationship with a person, maybe our degree of authority in their life or how they're gonna benefit. Because if I say something, I mean, even me saying something up here, just because I'm standing on a platform and you're not, there are people in this room who are gonna take what I have to say with a little bit more weight. So speaking up here needs to be done with care. What I say up here needs to be closer to the truth. I don't want to kind of shade around the edges of something. But also, this happens just in life. Like, a, what a parent says to a kid is gonna have a lot more weight than what one of their friends says, in certain stages. In other stages, the, the friend's words carry a lot more weight. I feel like we should now turn to Ephesians chapter four, because I think this is where Paul kind of addresses our relationship with the truth in this beautiful image that I wanna share with y'all. So Paul's been talking about the things that Jesus has done, and then it says, starting in verse 11 of Ephesians four, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I'm gonna stop there for a second. The whole point of having apostles, preachers, pastors, evangelists, different people in the church with their different gifts is because they're gonna be speaking to one another in a way that builds up the body of Christ, equips the saints to do the work of ministry of building up the body of Christ. Let's keep going. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, 
by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That long sentence, which is one sentence in Greek, which is why this translator split it up into like three, uh, the whole image, if you heard that, is about a body that is coming together, that is being built up. If Jesus is our head and we are his hands and feet and eyes and nerves and lungs and bones, we're being built up together. We've got joints, we've got body parts, and they're growing up into a mature body. The image here is growth from a child to an adult. And I really love this metaphor. That line in the middle at verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. Actually, literally, it's truthing in love. The verb, doesn't, it's, the verb is truth. We're to be truthing in love together. This is what builds us up together. As we grow from a spiritual child to a spiritual adult all together as one family, uh, it makes me think about this metaphor, like truth is the food that nourishes us. Truth is the food that helps us to grow up. And if you think about food, at first babies need milk. They need something very soft, they need something very gentle. They don't need a lot of it. Then they start having solid food. But even with solid food, we have to cut it up because they might choke on it. It makes me think about what I said earlier about there's different people when I'll talk to them about Christ, either outside the faith or newly to the faith. And there's certain pieces that are a little bit too big to chew. And I think that we should be careful. We should handle the truth with care in the way that we are teaching people. We need to give them what they can digest at the moment. But as a healthy person is growing up, they can start eating more and more on their own. But at the same time, we don't force feed people. We serve it to them on a plate. We offer people truth. We aren't just shaming it down their throat. That's how that phrase is normally used. Speaking the truth in love is, is speaking the truth in a way that people can hear it, that you know the whole line that they don't care what you know if they don't know that you care. They don't care what you know if you're not speaking the truth, but they also don't, won't know that you care if you aren't saying it in a way that they can digest. You have to speak to people at different ages, at different levels, with different sizes, based on what they can handle. I think one of the main ways that we're actually supposed to obey this command to speak truth and love is not just about like the inconvenient truths that get put out. You know, people will say, you need to speak the truth and love about this controversial issue that's kind of hard for people to hear. The focus of this passage is growing. The focus of this passage is building up. So I think the main obedience to this is encouragement and speaking the truth of Scripture to encourage one another. You know, Jesus said, you know, that, that when it says don't murder, what it really means is to love one another. When it says don't commit adultery, it means don't lust. It also means don't, uh, to like remain faithful. You should remain faithful to your commitments, to your marriage and other commitments in your life. When it says don't perjure, don't lie, really we should speak the truth lovingly to one another. We should encourage one another. We should build one another up. I've been in communities where this was a living and active part of group where we regularly would encourage one another. Like I had this one night that I thought was really cool. We all took a piece of paper, we taped it to our back, and everybody went around just writing encouraging things on each other. 
And some of them were just like, you're really funny. I really love when you said this thing. That one time you told me a Bible verse really encouraged me when I needed it. And then at the end of the night, everybody takes them off. And everyone just starts crying because it hits them so hard. Because it deeply, deeply impacts them. It's the truth that they need in the moment that builds them up, that encourages them, and makes them feel like they are part of this body together. Another way in which I feel like we should obey this command is the way that we tell the truth to our own minds. Like if we are falsely accusing other people. Let's say I take you to court in my heart. I start making up accusations about you, I start accusing you, and I convict you of a crime. But you have no idea what's going on. Like if I have an expectation that my friend you know, were to come pick me up from the library, but I had miscommunicated about it and I'm suddenly starting to accuse him. He doesn't remember me, he doesn't care about me, you know, whatever, but he didn't even get the message. The other day, I was with a friend. I was working on my laptop, I was just kind of talking about whatever, and apparently she had started crying. And I didn't notice, because I was just like looking right here. She was crying, she kind of dotted her tears, uh, she went to the bathroom, she came back, and then said something about like, basically, didn't I care, in her mind, I just didn't care that she was crying. I was uncomfortable with it, so I was just like avoiding it, when really, I didn't notice at all. She had made up a story, um, but thankfully she just immediately came to me about it and addressed it, and I said I was sorry for not noticing. She said she was sorry for making up a story about me. But when we assign motives in our head, when we make up stories about other people, when we see people's actions and we assume bad intentions, we're breaking the ninth command in that we are accusing them in our own heart. We're not telling the truth about them and we're not giving them the benefit of the doubt. A last way in which I feel like is really, really valid for our culture is the way in which we need to not pass on truths we're not sure about. We, I think of the internet. I think of the disinformation that gets spread. I think of the rumors that get spread around. Um, and actually, I have a poem that I just really love that encapsulates the power of a rumor, whether it's true or not. This comes from an ancient uh, Latin poem that I really enjoy that I translated when I was in high school, and it's just stuck with me for years and years. I just think about this. Straight away, rumor flies through the great cities. Rumor, swiftest of all the evils of the world. She thrives on speed, stronger for every stride. Slight with fear at first, soon soaring into the air. Now rumor is in her glory, filling people's ears with tale on tale of intrigue, singing her song of facts and falsehoods mingled together. The, the rest of the poem kind of envisions rumor as being like this big ugly bird that has a bunch of eyes and a bunch of mouths ready to see things, hear things, and then pass on terrible rumors about each other. And what's so interesting about rumors is that you have the opportunity to pass on some things that are true that maybe are harmful to another person's reputation. But then also, in so doing, you are potentially perpetuating lies about someone. When we pass on information that isn't necessarily true, we're not loving the person it's about. We're not loving the person that we're talking to. There's actually a uh, Hebrew uh, rabbi who wrote about this in, I think it was like the third century BC. He was talking about the ninth command, and he said that the ninth command, when we are when you're gossiping or slandering somebody about it, uh, you have kind of multiple victims to the situation. The evil tongue slays three, the slanderer, the slandered, 
and the listener. If I say something about my friend bad to you, all three of us are participating in something that's harmful. We're all participating in lies instead of in truth. When we lie, we're breaking trust. Our testimony, everything that we have to say, is weakened. And in so doing, we might misrepresent who God is. I heard from a friend three gates that he likes to use when he's talking about like what, what he should actually say, whether or not he should actually pass on information. Is it true? Is it necessary to say? And is it kind? I really like those as, as sort of boundaries for uh, if the next thing that comes out of my mouth is worth me saying. What if we were people that were always encouraging one another? What if the internet didn't have any more disinformation on it and instead was only actually just a source of truth? And what if we as Christians were constantly encouraging the people around us, building them up, acknowledging them when they did something right, uh, and then telling them the truth about Jesus? We would be like so different than this discouraging world. Just to close, I just want to say that I feel like when we encourage one another, um, we have this temptation that we're afraid. That like, you know, what if what I say doesn't really matter? What if what I say, uh, you know, is, is just kind of worthless and I've put myself out there? But when you put yourself out there, you are building a connection with another person. You are risking sounding maybe dumb or wrong, and you are loving that person in a sacrificial way. It can feel really weird to just encourage people out of the ordinary because, like, that's not something that we normally do as a culture. But if we were to be a culture that did that, we would be people that would speak the truth and be full of it. We would be sanctified by it because God's word is truth. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you for the words that Jesus prayed for us, and we ask again that you would sanctify us. I ask, Lord, that as we are in every moment dealing with our words, figuring out how to handle them, you would teach us what to say. You would guide us in our words, because you can do that. You promised that whenever we needed help, the Holy Spirit would come and he would speak through us. He would help us. He would give us words to say that would build others up, that would avoid evil, and would testify to who Jesus is. We ask that we would be strengthened to do that this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.